Be nice to them. Now that is the love of God. That is not something that is natural to a human being. So let's keep in mind that we're here to learn to love like God does. He loved the whole world, sinners and all, those who hate Him, who deny Him, as did Christ, who set an example of the love of the Father while He was on this earth and said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's where we need to be. Not only to the world, but to each other right here. No one has said to me if they're tired of going through the Psalms, but as Nelson said, maybe saying, oh no, we're going to go to Psalms again. I hope that isn't the attitude. Uh, it's not been expressed or intimated to me in any way, but I've started into it and I'm not going to quit. <laughs> we're going to finish this. It is an important part of God's Word, and it's one that I've never heard a series of sermons on. Or I don't know, I've never heard of it, whether anybody was intrepid enough to try to go through it in the Bible study series for that matter, because it is 150 chapters long. I've seen some real quick summaries of it. You know, it's divided into five books, and you ought to look at it as five books. Uh, Thank you, that was nice. And that's, you know, maybe a little more detail than that, but not a whole lot. But there is an awful lot here that's repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Revelation... And that was stated first in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that is rehashed about the mind and attitude of God. And he put it in here for a purpose. And really, it does apply, every bit of it, to the church today. And I think that you can see those insights. I know sometimes a shorter series might be easier to get or to take. Uh, and... It would be formidable for someone who got on the website and say, oh, here's a series on the, on the Psalms and it lasts for X number of months or years, whatever. Uh, so would they listen to all that? I don't know, but it'll be there and the record will be there. And some of the prophecies that are repeated in that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel are right here and they're important for us. So. We'll continue here. Let's pick it up in Psalm 64. And uh, I'll try to pick up the pace a bit, but I don't want to brush over and let any of God's Word fall to the ground either. So if we're going to do it, we need to do it right, not just skim over it and and not really get the message that might be there week by week uh, from God's Word. Anyway, in chapter 64, he says, Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. There's a feeling, I think, that many of us have from time to time is, I want my prayer heard, and I'm not always sure God hears every prayer I pray. Sometimes the contact seems better than it does at other times. So, it's a natural emotion to want God to hear our prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Now, remember that these first two sections of Psalms, up through chapter 72 really are a great deal to do with Christ. And here and there, we'll see something in the context that he said directly, or directly happened to him uh, as he was being taken, tortured, and killed. Uh, So it is woven throughout this, as well as what we go through uh, in trying to live the kind of life that he lived. We have the same pressure points and difficulties. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. He saw it coming. He knew it was about to happen, and yet he wanted God's help in dealing with it. Just as we realize the end of the age is upon us, and we need God's help in dealing with it, because even as they were seeking to kill him, Satan and those human beings whom he directs, are going to be seeking to kill everyone on the earth who understands God and who has his spirit. That light, however dim or however bright, Satan sees. He knows where the spirit of God is and he knows the people who have it. And he will target them. If you read Revelation 12, you'll find when he's cast down from heaven for the final time, uh, as the church flees to a place of safety... He knows exactly where to go. 
to try to kill us all. He, has, he doesn't have to get a road map or ask directions. He's going to know. So, we can pray for protection and hiding from the enemy, whether it be men who are conspiring to rule the world or Satan who is behind the scenes directing them to try to rule the world. There is a world ruling government coming. The scripture makes it very, very plain. Why is it so difficult sometimes for people, even in the church, to see that there are those who are planning, let's use that word instead of conspiring. It's essentially the same thing. You get together and make a plan, that's a conspiracy or a plan. Why is it so difficult when God says there will be a world-ruling empire arise with iron and miry clay for feet and will rule the world, and then people think that there's no plan being formulated to do that? Many, many people throughout the greater church of God still cannot see the planning and conspiracy that is going on before our very eyes. How can we be so blind to something God says so plainly will occur? And which has happened throughout history with men like Alexander the Great or Hitler or, you know, name a whole bunch. Napoleon, whoever throughout history, they've always conspired to do it. Go back to Nimrod. Uh, wanted to rule the whole earth. And then God scattered them so that that could not happen. <coughs> so this thing is coming down upon us, whether we recognize it or not. Who wet their tongue like a sword, and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the mature, the spiritually not perfect. There are none of us except for Christ, and this happened to him as well. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. Do you think they fear those at this point who obey God? No. They will without any problem come after and try to get us all. And it is only God's protection that will stop it. And he says he will be a protection to his righteous at the end time. We have nothing to fear. All we have to do is have faith and trust in God. I think that's why he gave us this open valley, because when this thing starts coming down, we are defenseless except for his protection. So it's all a matter of faith, is it not? That's what it's all about. That's what he's looking for when he returns to this earth, and which he will find very little of. So he put us here to test, to try our faith, to see if we believe and trust in Him. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They commune of laying snares privately. They say, who shall see them? There are people planning traps and snares for all people, and especially God's people, right now, today. They search out iniquities. They will look for imperfections. They will try to find faults in us. Might not be too hard to do. They accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart is deep. They are set on evil and they want to find evil and they want to find reasons to destroy God's people. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. Well, God is going to take a hand at some point and he's going to take care of his people. So they shall make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away. So that which they're planning is going to be turned on them. And God is going to protect his people and he's going to send out people against them that will make them turn tail. Not just two witnesses, but read Micah, is it into four or into five? where it says seven, even eight principal men will go out against the Assyrian when he comes into our land. And all men shall fear and shall declare the works of God, for they shall wisely consider of his doing. That's the end of this whole thing. Once God sets his hand, he will create the destruction. And when it's all said and done, everyone left 
or left alive on the earth is going to fear God and be humbled. We need to do it now so that we can show them the attitude that they need to have. The righteous shall be glad in the eternal and shall trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. So it's all going to turn out right for those who will put God first and trust in him and fear him who is able to kill body and soul, not just him who is able to kill the flesh. We worry too much about that. The preppers in the world today who understand what's coming are motivated a great deal by fear. We need to be motivated by faith and trust in a God who can protect us. Psalm 65, praise waits for you, O God, in Zion. God has led us to Zion, and this is where praise for God waits. Not too many people on this earth truly praise God in the way that He wants to be praised. Now, there are a lot of people who give Him lip service and say praise the Lord and go through all kinds of evangelical emotion, but it is not true worship and it is not the love of God because they do not obey. And God does not give His Spirit to those who do not obey. He only gives His Spirit to them who do obey. So all these people who say the law is done away with and you don't have to obey do not have God's Spirit. That's what He Himself says in so many words. I don't, I'm not grinding an axe against them. I'm just saying that's what God says. And they think they have the Spirit of God and it isn't the Spirit of God at all. It might be the human spirit of affection and emotion. Or it might be a very subtle spirit of Satan who has transformed himself as an angel of light. To receive God's Spirit and to have the true praise for God, the only people on earth left who will have it will be at Zion. Praise waits for him there. And all the faithful remnant will wind up there. And those who do not will have to repent in great tribulation. And it will be very difficult. They will have God's Spirit, but they won't understand and they will not have an attitude of being willing to obey and go where God says. And 90% of the church will not even listen to the two witnesses. Unbelievable. But true. Because that's what God says. They might at some point wake up in time to stand up and die. O you that hear prayer, unto you shall all flesh come. That's the whole point of these end time prophecies. And Christ opened the door for this eventuality when he came, lived, and died. He started the process that will ultimately lead to all people coming to worship God. It's a process. It's a a process that takes time. It's stretched out over two millenniums now. And we're almost at the conclusion of it. It's almost time for him to arise and put them all in fear and humble them so that they will all come and worship him, as the end of Zechariah says. So this stretches from the time of his crucifixion and resurrection all the way through the millennium and the great white throne judgment is the period of time that we are covering here. All flesh will not have come to him until they're resurrected in the great white throne judgment and come up humble and do come to him. Then this will be finally fulfilled. O you that hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you shall purge them away. All our iniquities, our sins, are going to be forgotten. Blessed is the man whom you choose and cause to approach you. In this end time, many have been called under the former temple, Herbert Armstrong. And now, out of the scattering, a few are being chosen. And we can be among those. 
And we will be blessed if that be the case. Those you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. He says in Haggai, he's going to stir them to come and dwell in his courts to build his temple. Whether it be a physical or a spiritual temple or both, it has to be done. To approach to you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, even of your holy temple. We do not have that luxury today. The latter temple is yet to arise in its fullness and in its glory. And that will not occur until the gathering of God's remnant occurs when the two witnesses are in place and God draws the people to them to build the temple. That's when it will happen. By terrible things in righteousness will you answer us. O God of our salvation. So it's talking not terrible, not bad things, but uh, dramatic things might be a better uh, modern English word. By great and wonderful dramatic things in righteousness will you answer us. Because we've seen in many, many scriptures where he says he will do that. Who are, the, who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of them that are afar off upon the sea, which by his strength sets fast the mountains, being girded with power? So he says, if you want to have faith, you want to have trust, and somewhere that your trust will be well placed, put it in God, which stills the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people. Of course, through the Bible and the prophecies, uh, a sea of people, or seas, refer to people. So he is able to rule, and will rule, before it's over, the whole world, the whole earth, and everyone that is in it. And we can reign with him. Verse 8, They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at your tokens, or your acts, the tokens of his existence, the things he does to show who he is. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening to rejoice. It is only through God that we can truly have joy and rejoicing. It's one of the fruits of his spirit. Godly rejoicing. Morning and night. He is going to bring conditions where he says, oh, people will say, I wish to God it were daytime. And then they'll say, I wish to God it were nighttime. They will be unhappy, miserable, and frustrated day and night. So it is only He who can be bring rejoicing both in the evening and in the morning. Where we look forward to the day because God is in it and His blessing is there. We look forward to the night because we can relax and enjoy the peace that God gives us. So we can look forward to day and night, not dread both as all mankind will soon do. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it with the river of God. Probably referring to that ultimate time when, at the beginning of the millennium, when God's kingdom comes down and the river comes out from beneath the throne of the Father and the Son, out of the new Jerusalem, and waters the earth. Just as it did in Eden which is full of water, you prepare them corn when you have so provided it. You water the ridges thereof abundantly. You set the furrows thereof. You make it soft with showers. You bless the springing thereof. So God will give water in due season. He'll make sure that the crops get what they need when they need it, not drought or too much rain at the wrong time. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drop fatness. He set up the annual cycle, the yearly cycle, the holy days within that cycle, to remind us of his plan and his purpose of salvation for mankind. So he's going to bless the year again. Instead of the year being, oh, this year's over, I hope the next one's not worse. Uh, because we see a degenerating trend and times are getting worse. 
Now, for those who obey Him, times should start getting better. At the same time, they get worse for the world. Uh, We'll get to that here in a minute, I think. They drop upon the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. So it's not going to be the big dogs anymore, but the little hills, the little people will rejoice. Those who have been oppressed, overtaxed, misused, abused, and their freedoms and liberties taken away are going to find peace in God. On every side, the pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered over with corn. They shout for joy. They also sing. Now, I think this is referring to that time that Haggai and Zechariah refer to, the scene. The context is clearly that of the two witnesses at the end and the church who is brought together under them, them giving oil to all seven of the lamps. And this kind of blessing is emphasized there. Every man having his own vine and fig tree, end of Zechariah 3. So this is something that is going to occur prior to the millennium, and then on a larger scale during the millennium. It will be a test, uh, an educational time for God's people who will then be given opportunity to reign with Christ and rule the earth to learn how it ought to be set up, and for the world to see an example of how life should be. We're here to begin that process. We're also waiting for God's blessing and waiting for Him to turn His face and shine upon us as we turn to Him. Things are going to get better in this life for us if we serve Him. And He's promised He will bring rain in due season. He will bless us here in the end time, not just in the millennium. Interesting note there, it says the valleys. So whether this is speaking of this end time, or whether it also includes the millennium, which I think it does stretch forward to until all men serve God in the great white throne judgment finally, notice there are valleys. Well, what's a valley? A valley is a depressed or low area between what? Hills or mountains. Some people think that the earth is going to be as flat as a table in the millennium or the great white throne judgment. I kind of doubt that. Why would it be just totally personality-less and totally flat? What inspires us geographically on the earth? The mountains? The snow-capped peaks, we enjoy those things. We like to go up into the mountains. Christ went up into the mountains to pray. Uh, I don't think that we're going to see uh, just a flat, insipid earth. (coughs) Then chapter 66, Make a joyful noise to God, all you lands. Sing forth the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. Now this... Involves us, doesn't it? You might say, well, that's way off, that's millennium. Well, it does include that. But aren't we going to be there then? Isn't this conditioning for our minds and our emotions and education for us of what our, ed- what our attitudes have to be and will be and what we ought to be working on now so that we can be truly Leaders, kings, priests, those to whom people will look as their teachers. Now, hard sometimes it's hard for us to imagine being in that kind of a setting where people all over the earth will look to you, whoever you are, to be an inspiration, to be an encouragement to be a strengthening, to be a teacher who has the perfect balance of encouragement and yet discipline. You'll hear your teachers and they'll say, this is the way, walk in it. So there's going to be a perfect blend and balance of encouragement and discipline. Are we ready for that? Well, this right here, the Psalms. Give us a great insight 
into what our minds, emotions, and attitudes should be, how we should be reacting. Sing forth the honor of His name. Make His praise glorious. We sing the Psalms about how we praise and glorify and honor God's name. And if we're doing that, we don't have time to demean and put down each other, do we? Say to God, how wonderful are you in your works. Through, your great, through the greatness of your power shall your enemies submit themselves to you. And all the earth shall worship you and shall sing to you. They shall sing to your name. That's worth stopping thinking, meditating on, and that's why Selah is put in there again. doesn't mean Petra. It means stop, pause, think, perceive, meditate on this. Come and see the works of God. He is wonderful in His doing toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in Him perhaps referring both to the Red Sea and when the rivers of the Jordan River piled up and they were able to walk through on foot. The thought struck me this morning when I was going over this that God doesn't mention Noah's flood too often, does He? It isn't something that you see over and over and over again uh, through the Scriptures. But you see the Red Sea, and to a lesser extent the Jordan, mentioned over and over again. Now, the contrast to me is interesting. Noah's deluge destroyed all mankind except eight souls. It was a cleansing and a fresh start. It wasn't God intervening in the lives of men to begin to lead them toward a goal. It was to obliterate them and start over in a small way to see if society couldn't improve. But the Red Sea was an entirely different matter. He had put people through 430 years in a land that was, in the long run, not so kind to them, and wound up being absolute and abject slavery to the system of Satan and the world. Then he began, in a small way, and then in very dramatic fashion, to deliver them. And to lead them to a promised land. They got in their own way, and had trouble, and many did not make it to that promised land. But God fulfilled His promise and His purpose, and they did enter Now, that started a process that has been repeated several times with the early New Testament church, and now in the end time with the revived church, which also fell on its own sword and has to be rebuilt yet one more time. Correctly. Correctly. Rebuilding will do no good unless it's done correctly. There are many, many splinters of worldwide out there who are doing the same old thing again that was done in worldwide, and that is not correctly. If that had been correct, what existed then, it would not have needed to be destroyed and rebuilt, but it was spewed out. Therefore, it must be that some major corrections in attitude, in approach, in obedience, in understanding, have to be made. Now, if you see churches of God today who are doing the same old thing, are not changing anything, who are not moving forward, who are not looking to see what they might do better, then you are not seeing an improvement. You are seeing the same old thing redone, and it will not be honored and blessed by God. That is a fact of Scripture. Recreating worldwide will do no one any good.
Now, most of you who have listened to me for the last 15, 16 years know that. But there are new people who hear these sermons, so I repeat some of these things. But it doesn't hurt us to be reminded of them either. And I try to remind myself of them throughout the week, every week. And when I begin to get a little frustrated or discouraged, all I have to do is go back through some of these scriptures in my mind or read them on the paper, and my attitude can be restored. Because we all need it corrected and restored. And sometimes if I begin to think, well, how could that be? All I have to do is go back and read these scriptures that have become so familiar, and the story is there. Doesn't depend on me, doesn't depend on you. It's just in God's Word. It's just that people don't see it. They don't understand it. And you and I are no smarter than they are. We have been blessed to have our minds opened. That's what we've been blessed to do. I did not intend to even build a congregation when I left the last group I was with. I thought there were probably plenty already. But God intended one because he intended us to do a job, prepare a place and get it ready for his people to come. He made that very, very clear by opening these scriptures to my understanding so I could preach it so that others might hear it and be moved to come and do it. It's that simple. Not that I was smarter than any other minister. It wasn't I was more righteous. God forbid I should ever claim that, because I know better. But he had to take one who was not maybe as good as some of the others, who was not as smart as some of the others, and just open it so that it might be seen. And then it's not because I'm smart, it's because God opened the mind to one who's less than smart, okay? I know that. I know that. The only reason we are understanding even the book of Psalms, more so than anyone else, is because God has opened the story to us. And that's not to our credit, that's to his. And it doesn't make us better or more righteous than anyone else. I don't think we are. I really don't think we are. It's easy to get self-righteous and to think over much of ourselves. We can't go there. We have to be humble. We have to be meek and glorify God in his holy name. That's where we have to be. And we need to be humble enough to esteem each other here better than ourselves. We need to esteem others in the other congregations better than us. And the world around us better than us. And we need to esteem each other here, especially, better than ourselves. That's what Paul says. Esteem others better than yourselves. We tend to build ourselves up and criticize others as human beings. That is not the love of God. The love of God is to put others on a higher plane than we consider ourselves. Now, we're not commanded to love them any more than we love ourselves. Even loving them to the same degree we love ourselves is a real stretch for any of us. We are not to be prima donnas. We are not to look upon ourselves in any way that is high and mighty. But to humble ourselves and be servants. That's what Christ did. It is not natural. But that's what we're here to do. So when we rise up in pride and vanity and ego and try to straighten each other out, we probably have the wrong attitude. We approach Matthew 18 in the traditional fashion, 
And that is to try to straighten that person out. Not go in absolute, abject humility, meekness, kindness, gentleness, and help them help themselves. Matthew 18, again, is not in any form or fashion a club. <coughs> it is a method whereby we go to gain our brother, and it says so right there. Not make them admit they're wrong, not put them down, not correct them, to gain them, to help them love us. If you go, and you think you're going to use Matthew 18 on somebody, and you come out of there without them loving you more than when you went in there, it is more than likely you went in with the wrong attitude. You didn't do it right. You didn't go to gain your brother. You went to straighten them out, to correct them, and to read them the riot act. You misused the scripture. So repent. And come to have the love of God. Now I have no idea where I was here. What did I, what verse was I in? Six was six, what? Still in 66. Yeah. Oh yeah, he turned the sea into dry land. That's where I was. My, I lost it in my little sermonette there. Uh, verse 7, he rules by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Rebel rebellion is self-exaltation, is it not? Or self-exaltation is rebellion, because God says, be humble, be meek. And when we rise up above someone else, in anger, in most cases, or frustration, then we are in a rebellious attitude toward God's people and toward God and His Word. Because we're not supposed to be proud and vain, we're supposed to be humble and meek. Verse 8, O bless our God, you people, and make the voice of His praise to be heard. That's what He wants to hear. He wants to hear blessing and glory and honor to His name which holds our soul in life and suffers not our feet to be moved. <coughs> we close to God, our feet won't be moved. He says that that which cannot be moved in the book of Hebrews is what he's looking to. For you, O God, have proved us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Isn't that what's been going on? Haven't we been going through trial, trouble, difficulties? Not much persecution yet, but difficulties. Trials and troubles, tried in the furnace. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction upon our loins. So God is the one who brings these things upon us. Isn't it clear in Revelation 3 that he says, because of your attitudes, I spew you out as vomit upon the earth? He's behind what's going on in the church. Let Satan do a lot of the dirty work, but he's the one behind it because this is what it takes. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us unto a moist or wealthy or pleasant place. Even though we may not have too much physical rain out here right now, I still consider it a wealthy or a good or a good place to be. Uh, we are away from the mainstream world that's going on out there that's headed for, is already in trouble and headed for a whole lot more. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. Of course, Romans 12:1, a living sacrifice is what he's talking about here, not something dead, not animals that you kill, but killing human nature and reveling in the glory and the love of God. 
which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Think about that. If we truly thank God and feel blessed with the knowledge, with the opportunity that He has given us, will we not then do everything we can to show our gratitude, our love, our willingness, our spirit of service to His people? We can't really, in a way, do it to Him except in word, can we? But didn't Christ make it very, very clear that how we treat each other is how He says we treat Him? When I, when I was blind and naked and hungry, thirsty, you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. I don't know you. So the way we express the love of God is by the sacrifice, the time, the energy, the emotion that is necessary to help wherever we can help. That wasn't good grammar. Where we can help. Come in here, all you that fear God, and I will declare what He has done for my soul. If we're counting our blessings... If we're thanking God and in an attitude of thankfulness for what He's revealed to us, for what we've learned, for the opportunity that is ahead of us, we ought to be excited about it. We ought to be talking about these things. They should excite us. If we do, it shows that we're thankful and grateful to God, and it will show in the way we interact one with another. Will it not? Because He's going to judge us based on how we treat each other. That's been said time and again and will be said time and again. God will give us our eternal judgment based upon how we treat one another. He stated that in so many words. You can claim to love God, but if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, If you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you will have no continuing reward. That he makes very clear. It's not you and me, Lord. It never has been. Paul went through stonings through martyrdom, through shipwreck, through snakebite, through people saying the most scurrilous, downgrading, mean and nasty, evil things about him they could think of. And yet he moved forward serving people. That's what we have to do. That's what our reward is based upon. He couldn't have said it any plainer. How you treat each other is how I will treat you. Two little verses right there at the end of Matthew 24 or 25, whichever it is. Declare what he has done for your soul. If we're in thanksgiving... Glorifying Him, we'll be in a pretty good attitude. If we're down on people, we're not in such a great attitude. If I regard regard iniquity in my heart, the Eternal will not hear me. That's a nice little succinct statement. If I regard or hold iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Now, doesn't He say in another place that He hears not sinners? If we hold grudges and attitudes and remember people's infractions and sins and abuses and misuses and how they hurt our feelings, if we dote on and dwell on and hold those things in our hearts, God will not hear our prayers. You can pray all you want. You can pray 20 hours a day. But if you hold... Feelings toward others, negative feelings, 
in your heart and head, God will not hear you. We have to repent of that. We have to get it out. We can't let it abide within us. But truly, God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. You know, Christ could have said that. He had people misuse and abuse him, and none of it was justified. None of it. He didn't hold it against them in any form or fashion. He said, please forgive them, Father. They just don't understand what they're doing. He gave them every opportunity. You know, we all commit infractions and hurt people's feelings, don't we? We all do. And a lot of times we don't even know it. We say some stupid thing that hurts somebody's feelings and we don't, it's just right over our head, we don't even know we did it. Sometimes I do it and I'll think about it later. I said, I wonder if I hurt somebody's feelings when I said that. Me and my big mouth, why did I say that? Sometimes, maybe I did hurt them or offend them. And sometimes, maybe I didn't. If you bring it up to them and say, oh, I didn't pay attention to that. It wasn't a big deal. I knew you were just joking or laughing or, you know, or passing the time of day or whatever. I knew it wasn't mean or nasty. But we need to check ourselves because sometimes our sarcasm or our little jabs can be mean-spirited. It's okay to kid one another, but let's do it with honor and with love and kindness and, and, and everybody understand what the attitude behind it is. If the attitude is right, we can take kidding and teasing and so on and not be hurt by it. But if the attitude behind it is mean and nasty, then it's hurtful. But truly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer, and he did with Christ because he had the right attitude. Blessed be God, which has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. And sometimes, if we've been in a wrong attitude towards somebody else, that's just what we need to pray for, is God's mercy. And ask for forgiveness. Now, I know that I can say these things, and I can read these scriptures, and we will all go out of here... And we will not get, be rid of forevermore every grudge or every attitude that we might have had or will have towards somebody. And if you get rid of the ones you got now, you'll get some more in the future. I think I can predict that with a fair amount of certainty. So, we go to God daily and ask for His mercy and His forgiveness. And we put aside that day's attitudes and sin, along with all the others from the past, and bury them in the blood of Christ. And we start each day afresh, as Lamentations tells us we have opportunity for. So, if we pray for mercy and forgiveness and we truly turn loose our attitudes towards someone, God will hear our prayer and He will forgive, and we do get a clean slate. So, it's not all gloom and doom. I'm just saying we've got to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. We have to move forward. We, can't, we have to change. That's what this whole thing is about. Let's not lose sight of that. Worldwide Church of God broke up because we were all in Laodicean, ho-hum, take-it-for-granted attitudes. And God wants to shake us into change. I have been crying that very loudly for a decade and a half now. Are we hard of hearing? Are we dull? Have we heard it so much that, oh no, here we go again. Or are we humble and meek and willing to listen to chastening, to guidance, to instruction in righteousness, so that we might make the changes we need to make? As someone said, if you feel like your toes are being stepped on, it hurts, your dander can get up, your ego can arise, 
But if it hurts, it probably was needed. If it gives you a bad attitude, it probably was needed. And you probably need to go and face that fact and make the changes you need to make rather than just being offended by it. I try to stay very close to these scriptures and just repeat what they say to all of us and comment on them and expound them and give the sense of it, as it says in the book of Nehemiah. You don't just read the scripture. Anybody can do that. But it needs to be expounded, explained, applied to our lives to help us see how it fits us now. Us now, not somebody else. And be guided, led, corrected, strengthened, encouraged by God's Word. Sixty-seven then. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. And we've read many prophecies which show that He has turned His face away from the church and that when we repent and turn to Him, and hopefully early then He will turn His face back and shine on us. So this is exactly what you and I are praying today. That your way may be known upon earth. The point is that when God does turn His face back to His faithful people, to His remnant, the whole earth is going to know our way. They will see the way of God being enacted before their very eyes. And they will see His face shine upon them, His blessing return to them, and everything will go well. This is a now prophecy. Your saving health among all nations. Isn't it going to be preached aloud to all nations? And then the end will come. That has not been done yet. Herbert Armstrong did not do that. The church, the remnant church, led by the two witnesses, will do that. And then the end will come. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. That's the ultimate goal and purpose, is to show how God's way is enacted through His people. He then blesses them, and then they know what is to come. And all people then ultimately will praise God. And part of it will be because, hopefully, we have been a light to the world. That's what this is all about. It's what we're here to become. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Think about that. Let the people praise you. <coughs> oh God, let all the people praise you. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear Him. That's the end and the purpose of everything that's going on, is that ultimately everybody come to worship God. And we're the ones who have been called and hopefully are now being chosen to do that very thing, to establish it in righteousness here on an earth that is full of hatred and misery. Didn't he do that with the early New Testament church? Didn't he send Christ to a world that was sold in sin and through him begin to train people to be a light to the world. <coughs> and then that light pretty much died out. And now he wants the light turned back on. The church tried to hide for decades, and that's not going to work. Now we must arise in faith and in trust and in obedience to God, and then he will proclaim us to the whole world. And we will not fear, but we will serve him in faith and in honor, and he will give his blessing to us. It's what we're here to become and to do.
Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. Now that hasn't happened, has it? But it's about to. So this is an end time prophecy. A smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. Happened in Noah's day, it's about to happen again. So this is a now prophecy. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them exceedingly rejoice. (coughs) So even as he turns the world upside down and brings death, fear, and destruction upon the world as a whole, right in the middle of that, right as that occurs, he tells his people to honor and glorify and rejoice before him. So the context here is of the end time destruction of the world's population, and the end-time events of Daniel and Revelation. That's the context, because it hasn't been done since Noah on this scale. And in the middle of that, we are supposed to be able to rejoice. Sing to God, sing praises to His name. Extol Him that rides upon the heavens by His name, Yah, and rejoice before Him. There's a particular time context here in which this is to be done. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. The world is essentially fatherless now. They're worshiping their father the devil, as Christ put it to the Pharisees. And he's not a father at all, is he? He didn't create anybody. He didn't make anybody. He's just destroying the ones that are here. So, he is going to become a father to the fatherless. That would be us. We've been orphans out here in the world. And he's called us out and adopted us as his sons. We have the spirit of adoption, he says. We weren't by nature godly. We were human by nature. And he has given us his spirit that we might become godly. So, he's our father now. And the widows, those who did not have a mother, now have the church. She is depicted as the mother, just as the church will be in the millennium as the bride of Christ, the mother. So we are already here to enact, to be or to act in the position of a mother. A mother cares for, loves, serves her family. That's what we're here to do, serve the family of God, and ultimately the whole world who will be included in the family of God. Not included now, but they will be then. We're preparing for that. That's why this verse 5 is in here. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. We were scattered through the church, weren't we? He's given us a family. This is our family. We are brothers and sisters together. We are part of the mother. So he's taken us away from our physical families. And he said he would, didn't he? And brought us and given us a new family. So we are here to blend ourselves together. Our backgrounds, our emotions, our feelings to become family. We are not here to separate ourselves and to be part of just our physical family, but He has set us here to be above our physical families, beyond our physical families, in a love of God that goes deeper than human attachment and emotion and feelings, but to incorporate people who are not blood-related except through Adam, And brought them together to become family. All races, all creeds, all backgrounds, all cultures, blended together to become one together. A cogent, close, loving family. 
The Spirit of God, again, is thicker than blood. doesn't mean we can't love our physical families, but Christ made it so very, very clear that those who were seeking Him for spiritual guidance, He put ahead of His physical mother and brothers and sisters and said, These are my family. This is where it really counts. Not blood relation. Do we yet understand that? You and I have been called here, no matter what our surname, to become part of the mother for the church and the mother for the world and to be brothers and sisters together. That's what we're here for. And it has to transcend family lines And go way above and beyond that. Then you get beyond human love and into the love of God. Okay? That's what this is about. Verse 6, God sets the solitary in families. That's what I was just commenting on. Verse 7, O God, when you went forth before your people... When you did march through the wilderness, Selah says, this, this is the way it's to be. He's to guide us and bring us through these troubles, storms, famine of the word in the land, a dry and thirsty land. Physical desert is one way that that is expressed, but it's a spiritual famine, he says there in Amos. Famine of the word is where we really lack. He went before us. He's given us food, hasn't he? When it's hard to find. Said he'd come out of the southwest. If you take Amos apart properly, that's where Herbert Armstrong began, really began, or or established the former temple. And it's going to come from the same section of the country, and you won't find it anywhere else. Guaranteed. Sea to sea. North to south. Only in the southwest is not included in what Amos says. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. We need to be moved emotionally by God and what He's doing. Even as the mountain itself shook. You, O God, did send a plentiful rain, whereby you did confirm your inheritance when it was weary. Are we getting weary? Are we getting tired? Are we feeling old? Are we feeling useless, worthless? This is the darkness before the dawn, brethren. God has promised us if we're faithful through trouble, trial, tribulation, difficulty, and we come out of the furnace as silver and gold, then He is going to bless us to be able to do the work that He has set before us. Your congregation has dwelt therein. You, O God, have prepared of your goodness for the poor. The Eternal gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. It's going to grow in number. Kings of armies did flee away from it. And she that tarried at home divided the spoil. The Assyrian is going to flee before the church. Fire will come out from the mouths of at least two and devour their enemies. But it won't be their attitude to devour anybody. It will be that God simply provides it for their protection. And then others will run from it. And it will show His power. Not the power of humans, but God's power through those whom He's chosen to lead His end-time light. Verse 13, Though you have laid among the pots... Or sheepfold, it should be translated. Though you've led, you've been here in the sheepfold. You sh- you shall be as the wings of a dove, covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. Now, I was sitting out this morning in the sunshine for a while, and I saw lots of doves in the trees around. They didn't look particularly silver and gold to me. They have kind of a grayish, silverish cast and. They have a little bit of, of uh, yellow or orange in their wings. And that's what he's referring to. But he is refining us into silver and gold. 
Now we're to have the mind, the the be harmless as doves, to be gentle, to be meek, to be loving, to be kind. I've never heard a dove scream like an eagle or a hawk. Have you? I've never had them make an obnoxious cawing like a crow. I've heard them coo and make a gentle, resonating, pleasant sound in the land over and over again. They're pretty, they're gentle, they're meek, they're harmless. And He wants us to have the righteousness of silver and gold about us and to be as a dove. Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Kind and gentle with one another. When the Almighty scatters kings in it, it was white as snow in Salmon, up in the mountains. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan. Bashan means many peaks. The hill of God there is Zion and Jerusalem, is it not? That's what he calls his hill, his holy hill, Zion and Jerusalem. So the hill of God is like Bashan or like many peaks. Many people will stand up to be accounted for and it will be in a land of mountains. Because the peaks are both. Count the towers of Zion, the spires, the mountains that go up. Why leap you, you high hills? This is the hill which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the eternal will dwell in it forever. He says his eternal home is going to be at Zion. Be nice to establish where the true Zion is on earth, wouldn't it? Because that's where he says to go for a place of safety, a place of refuge. Where he's coming to, you better be in the right Zion. The chariots of God are 20,000. Even thousands of angels. The eternal is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. I'm going to stop right there, because uh, we do have the hospice nurse coming out. Well, let's see. It's, yeah, it's getting close to two. She's coming at two. I'm going to stop right there at the end of verse 17 for today. We can get the uh, the hymn done and, and be ready at two.